Good evening. Obviously, as Duane said this morning, we're going to be in Ruth, so why don't you grab your copy of God's Word and go ahead and go there, as I do the same. Apparently, at the moment, I can't remember where Ruth is. There it is. <laughs> okay. Thank you guys for leading us in, in worship tonight. Uh, man, what a, what a great way to start a service with baptism and worship of the Savior. Amen? Amen. So, we're going to start a series tonight uh, in Ruth, and we're going to forego chapter 1. Back on it was Sunday, September 1st. Uh, Sunday night, I preached Ruth chapter 1. He called me what that day was a moment of panic, kind of, uh, and, and asked me to preach that night. This was around the time we were walking with some people through some very difficult, difficult things and um, touching a large part of our community. And with that in mind and that request, I immediately went to Ruth chapter 1 and went there for that, for that night's message. And shortly after that, Dwayne said, hey, you've preached this book before. Why don't you, why don't you do it again? So here we are. Um, as I've said before, you may have heard me say this. I, I think I like to think of some of the stories in the Old Testament as kind of uh, kind of mountaintops of gospel history, and, and you stand on them, and in the distance you can see out there in the future from them you can see the cross, and there, there's other mountains, and and you think of it as kind of that kind of that 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 motif and valleys and rivers, and they're all woven together in this beautiful landscape of wonder and mystery and truth, with the cross always in view from the mountaintop of Ruth. The view is very, very clear, incredibly clear, and directly connected. If you've never studied the Ruth, I hope, I hope that stands out to you. Um, so we're going to study the Ruth in, in four parts. It might not, we're going to try to get through it in four weeks, but it's going to be four parts and it's each chapter. And the outline goes like this. Uh, it, the theme of the book is redemption. So chapter one is redemption orchestrated and unseen. Chapter two is redemption prepared and personified. Chapter 3 is redemption pursued and granted. Chapter 4 is redemption completed and consummated. Now, obviously, last week I was supposed to preach chapter 1. Of course, the bad weather prevented us from doing that. And the dilemma that I had was that I really wanted to do this part of chapter 2 tonight on Youth Night. Now, hopefully that will become apparent in just a little while. Uh, so I went back and forth with whether to push everything back a week or go ahead. So here's what we're going to do. Since I did, in fact, preach through chapter 1 back in September, uh, we're going to do a quick review. If you'd like to hear the whole thing, you can go back and download that. We can get you a copy of the CD. Uh, I can do it again if you want me to before, the, before, this, before this series is over. So however we decide to do that, there will be opportunity for you to hear that. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to go very quickly through a summary of chapter 1 because it's important and it all ties together. Um, so here's chapter 1, very, very quickly. Redemption orchestrated and unseen in a very, very abbreviated way. Elimelech took his family, uh, which means his entire household, his wife, his children, his servants, maybe even his livestock, and he took them to Moab in some kind of connection with the major famine that was going on, right? Uh, and while the family was there, Malon and Chilion, who were his sons, they married Moabite women. Now, if you're an Israelite, they're foreign women. They're, they're not our people. So they married Moabite women, but they had no sons. Then Elimelech dies. Then Malon and Chilion die. And now Naomi is left alone in a foreign land with only her daughters-in-law to, to work and together to provide for themselves. That's a bad situation in this day and in this time that we're talking of. It's a bad situation, okay? So Naomi tries to send Ruth and Orpah. The other, it's not Oprah. I don't want to read it that way. It's Orpah. Ruth and Orpah, she wants to send them back to their, to their own country, to their own families. Uh, Orpah goes and Ruth stays, having evidently been, having been led to faith in the one true God through her obviously real and very real love for Naomi and her devotion to Naomi. Now, we note that Ruth is clearly 
when we did chapter 1, we noted that Ruth is clearly and repeatedly called Ruth the Moabite, highlighting the fact that according to the letter of the law... Uh, in I forgot to write the reference down. That's in chapter 1 message, not in tonight's notes. But according to the letter of the law, she should have never married an Israelite. She have, should have never had any of the rights to go along with that. And she should have never been included in the people and the favor of God. But she was. That's important. But she was. We note this because this clearly teaches us that grace overcomes even the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And this is a precursor to how he does that. It overcomes the law, grace does, under which we all stand as doomed by the letter of the law, by the wrath of a holy and righteous God. Yet we're offered forgiveness and mercy by his equally and more powerful grace, right? I mean, yes, that's, that's good stuff, right? I, I always love that, the Ruth the Moabite and what that means. So at the end of chapter 1, Naomi, with Ruth close by, returns to Bethlehem, much to the surprise and the gossip of uh, the women who knew her there, she comes home to, to Bethlehem and she, she refused to even be called by her name, Naomi. She asked, call me Mara, which means bitter. In other words, though she knew God was sovereign, she knew that God was in control. She even said, the Almighty has done this to me. She knew God was sovereign and still control. She was not very happy about it. Okay? Ruth demonstrates and shows us grace. In chapter 1, Naomi demonstrates trust in God even when it's extraordinarily difficult. Okay? One note here, one more note before we move on to chapter 2, and that is this. You need to decide now what you believe about God before the hard times come. You need to decide now what you believe about God, that He is in fact, God, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he is faithful, that he is holy, that he sees what you do not see, that he understands what you don't and cannot understand, that he has the whole thing in view and you've got this much. You need to decide now what you believe about God before the hard times come. And to our students, to our young people, they will. Some of you know that they will. They already have for some of you. So we end chapter 1, which again was a very, very abbreviated version of redemption orchestrated and unseen with a, with a downcast Naomi, with a converted Ruth and a note of hope. Now at the beginning of chapter 2, we introduced preliminarily to Boaz. What a great name. I always love that name. I want a bulldog and name him Boaz. What a great name. But he is the kinsman redeemer. And we aren't told of his function just yet in the section we're going to look at tonight. Uh, but we're told of his character and uh, uh, just a little bit of the beginning of his story. We also see something of, in, of Ruth's character. So tonight is going to be a little bit different than the rest of the time where we look at the events. We're going to look at these two people. We're going to do a character study of what we see in this section of text we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look extensively, closely, at the character of Ruth and Boaz prepared for this moment and how God used them and personified his redemption for his greater glory and plan. Hence the name redemption prepared and personified. Would you please go with me to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite. Here it is again. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, who is, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather at, among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Let's pray together. God, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for all of the many wonderful things that we find in it. And thank you, Lord, Father, the, for the consistency of it that the whole thing points to one person and to one place and to one event. And that is our Savior Jesus and the cross on which he won our freedom. God, help us tonight as we look at these two people in your line, Lord, and how you use them. And what they may mean for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. For our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So first we're going to take a look at Ruth's character. Now again we're going to look at Ruth and Boaz. A little bit different than we treat the rest of the rest of the chapter. Uh, now of course character is something that we pursue. That we cultivate. Right. Uh, we also know that sometimes. Uh, what's what's the saying? So adversity builds character. But I always say that adversity sometimes doesn't build it. Sometimes it reveals it. Sometimes it reveals character. But we also know that character is something that is made in us by God. And it reveals what God has done, where they've come from and what God has done up to them in this point. I think we have to be careful sometimes, particularly in some of the, you know, the motivational, inspirational speeches that you hear out there. Character is divorced from a work of God in our lives. It always is, is God's grace. You talked about that this morning, right? Um, so just, I don't want to just divorce that, that these things are things that we should go try to build in ourselves. No, these are things that we want God to work in us and through us as we develop them. So we're going to, with that in mind, we're going to look at Ruth. And the first thing that I think we see about Ruth is that she was, uh, industrious. Now that's, that's kind of an outdated old fashioned kind of word, industrious. Do you even know what that means? What? Can you spell it? Uh, Ruth takes initiative to care for her mother-in-law. Okay, She takes initiative to do it. She finds the work that needs to be done and she does it. She speaks to Naomi asking permission nonetheless to go to the field and glean. And she, she probably knows maybe because 
she probably knows that this is part of Hebrew law, uh, that is to care for the widows by allowing them to glean in the fields after uh, the leftovers of harvest. This is expected, and she's come to know some of the customs, and Ruth probably knows that. So she takes advantage of the system that she can to provide for her and for Naomi. But what was not a right of the poor to do, as we see that Ruth does in verse 3, is to glean directly behind the reapers, to follow them while they're still on the field. The poor were allowed to come and get what was left over on the field after the reapers were gone. But she came and, and was right behind the reapers, thus having access to the freshest of the excess harvest. This was a privilege that could only be extended or refused by the gracious favor of the owner. We see in verse 7 that she asked to do this, and the overseer gave her permission. Now, this actually speaks a little bit of Boaz's character, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I think it's really awesome and interesting that his servant would know to extend that kind of grace, that special grace, on behalf of his master. He would know that, to do that. He didn't have to go ask. We're going to come back to that in a little while. What it says about Ruth's character is that she was willing to risk. She was willing to be bold to reach her goal of providing for her mother-in-law, whom she loved so much. Look at verse 3. Real quick. Uh, so she set out and went and leaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come on the field of Boaz. Now, I just this is kind of a side note, but this, just, this makes me laugh. This is a jewel of a phrase that stands just out by itself. She happened to come. To the field of Boaz. Do, do you get the joke? Do you get the irony? Happen to come? <laughs> no. No. There's no such thing as happenstance. There's no such thing as luck. God doesn't do luck. God does providence. God does orchestrating the affairs of man so that we can see his sovereign hand working his presence in every detail. The writer uses that word ironically, and to me, it's almost comical. There was nothing happenstance about it. She happened to come. Yeah. Now, it tells us a couple of things, actually, that I think are worth taking note and always remembering. The first of which is that God is, in fact, all the time, sovereign. You know what that means? Sovereign. What does it mean that America is a sovereign nation, young people? Does anybody else control America other than America? No. Does anybody else control? Does, does France tell England what to do? Well, I don't want to get into world politics. <laughs> but what it means is that they control their own affairs. God is sovereign over everything. He is, and he is actively and intimately involved in the details of our lives, causing some events, withholding other events, catching our attention here or there, allowing us to make decisions that are guided by his plan. But he is always in control. The other thing that it tells us is this and it is vitally connected to the first, is that you cannot sit idly on your hands, uh, you cannot sit idly on your hands doing nothing, waiting for some miraculous sign to happen, to have an, or, or have an, an audible where you hear God's voice or you see a daytime vision before you know what God's will is for you to go do. Really? Yes, really. There's some things that you know to do. Love God, Love people. You know to do those. Whatever is in front of you, whatever task you have, if it's high school or, dirty word, homework or whatever it is. If it's doing your job, if it's loving your family, whatever it is, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. And that's what Ruth was doing here. Okay? Simply put, she was industrious. And we should strive to be as well. The second thing... It's just crack. The second thing, which is 
arguably more important, is that Ruth was, was humble. Back to verse 2. Let's just start in verse 1 again. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. The reason I think this, there's a couple of points that show humility here on Ruth's part. And the one is that she takes a bit uh, of, of risk in asking to go glean behind the reapers, but she asked. She didn't go without her mother-in-law's permission. She asked her. She was not presumptuous. She didn't just take off and do it. I, that may be a small thing, but I think it's an important thing. She asked, and she did so knowing that she was only going to be able to do that if she was granted favor by the owner of the field. That make sense? You tracking? She never demanded anything. There it is. She never demanded anything. Another way to say it might be this. She adjusted the expectations to where she was in life, to her lot. In life, And she found what she could do, and she went to work. She knew also that she would depend, especially in her situation, she would depend on the kindness of others. But she wouldn't benefit from it without the effort attached to it. She was humble. It could be said, I have a thought, I'm going to see if it comes out right. Which rarely happens. It could be said that if we find ourselves poor, we should strive to be like Ruth. And if we find ourselves rich, we should strive to be like Boaz. Right? Okay, I'm glad that came out right. But I think what you're going to see is that both of them are models of this trait of humility in their God-given position. One was poor, one was rich. But they both did well where they were. Humility, true humility, seeking God first and everything else second, always does well. The third thing we see about Ruth is that she was devoted. She, she exhibited devotion. And that goes back to verse 2. She asked Naomi's permission. I think this is it's small, but to me it stood out. She could have went on her own to glean her Moabite exclusive exclusion heritage notwithstanding. But she respected, she simply respected her mother-in-law and loved her mother-in-law enough to ask permission. Later on in verse 17 and 18, there's, there's something a little later I'm going to skip ahead to that I think shows some measure of devotion. After she had gleaned and she'd eaten, eaten her fill, actually, we're told, she continued to collect because she was there not for her own fill but to provide for Naomi as well. She gathered an ephah of barley. I'm not sure if that's how you say that correctly. Now, by modern standards, this is about three-fifths of a bushel. I'm not a farmer. As I'm sure some of you would have a hard time guessing by my gruff exterior, I'm not a farmer. Uh, so I had to look this up. But the official commercial weight of a bushel now is about 48 pounds, a bushel of, of barley. So three-fifths of that would be about 30 pounds. Now that's significant. In a, and you throw it in a sack and throw it on your back and it can weigh you down. And she, could, she could have left somebody. She didn't take, have to take that much back. But she, this was a couple of weeks worth of barley for her and Naomi. And she lugged it from the field all the way back to town where she could have taken much, much less. She wanted to make sure that this woman that she loved so much, her mother-in-law, was taken care of. I would say that shows some measure of devotion. She's out there in the first place, working very, very hard, and then she brings much more back than she needs to. She was devoted. Now, the second one is, now the next one is one that I think could, could be said could be not appreciated as a, as a character trait and certainly abused as a character trait in our day. And that is Ruth was dependent. She was dependent. 
But we have to add the, the caveat, she was appropriately dependent. And it goes back to verse 2. And this phrase that's going to be much more important a little bit later, probably, probably next week. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. From the beginning of the day, Ruth knew that her success in going out and providing enough food from her work today would be the result of a grace or a favor extended from the owner of whatever field she, she wound up in. And perhaps she planned to ask for that extra privilege of gleaning right behind the reapers, maybe. Either way, we remember from chapter 1, if you, if you heard that, that she now worshipped the sovereign God of Naomi. Remember she told Naomi, your God will be my God. So Naomi trusted in that God to provide and, the, and, and under his favor, so Ruth was going to as well. She understood that, that truthfully, God was the one behind all the favor that we received. She was, the God was behind the grace that she was seeking from whatever owner of whatever field. At least I think she did. She must have. I think that has to be a factor here. Otherwise, why would the author have set this up where Boaz was just introduced, which who would be the conduit for that grace... The way that he does, the way that the author does, just before this comment, with the comment that he was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, that he was the kinsman redeemer. His name and a tiny bit of information about who he was right before, in whose, him, in whose sight I shall find favor. It's like, God was, it's like God was doing this. He's like saying, watch this, y'all. Which, coming, you know, if you're hanging out with people and somebody says, watch this, y'all, something bad's fixing to happen. But when God says it, watch. He's saying, watch how I weave the lives of these two people together for a grace moment like you will not believe. And it's going to be good, so don't miss it. So some of these character traits, now we should also, I should have said this at the beginning. These character traits that we're talking about tonight that we see in these, these are some traits that God had woven in these people for this moment. They're not an exhaustive list of all the traits that we should seek, right? But in this, we see uh, some of the character traits of what we're going to call a grace recipient, which we all are and should be. Does that make sense? Uh, de dependent, devoted, humble, industrious. This is the character of a grace recipient. You see, for grace, for favor to be properly received... Up to and including the grace of God offered in the gospel when a person hears it. There must be the prerequisite of a heart that has been prepared by God to hear it. Like the parable of the sower who threw some seed on the road and some seed on the rocky ground and some seed on the good soil. Not everyone is always ready to properly receive grace. Ruth had been shaped for this moment as the recipient of grace, as a grace receiver. Where are you? Are we ready? So let's turn our attention to Boaz for just a little while. Many of us know who, from hearing this story that, uh, and hearing preaching on it through the years that Boaz is a, is a Christ type. He's a representative of Christ in the Old Testament. He's a symbolic forerunner of Christ before Christ was on earth. We see these all through the Old Testament. Uh, Melchizedek. Uh, Boaz, the sacrificial lambs that are all through the Old Testament temple system, uh, Adam, all through the Old Testament. They represent and demonstrate the presence and the character, albeit partially and imperfectly, of Jesus in the Old Testament. They're forerunners. They're, they're foreshadowing. Okay? So we know that. So we don't need to spend a whole lot of time going into that, going into that here. 
What I do want to look at is, is, again, some of the character that we see from Boaz in this moment. If Ruth showed us some of the character that we can see in a grace receiver, then I think we can see that Boaz is a grace, I'm going to use the word grace giver, but I think a better word might be a grace conduit, something through which it flows, because we understand that we don't generate grace. Does that, does that make sense? It's a work of God in us and through us. So I want to use the word grace giver, but understand that's, that's what I mean. It's from him through us. Ruth might be a lost person being pursued by God or a younger, less mature disciple who is experiencing God's grace. And Boaz might be you. Might be the older disciple who's a little further down God's path and understands that he has to be a channel for blessing and instruction and sometimes even provision for others on their God journey. So what can we see of Boaz here? Mr. Right for Ruth, as it were. Now, this first one is, is, is it, it's imperative that we include it. I know I've said a character up at this point. This is not really a character trait, but it's part of how God shaped him. And that was the fact that he was a relative. We can't, we can't pass that by because he's called the kinsman redeemer. He had to be family. This reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, as Christians, as Christ followers, we are not responsible only for ourselves. As Christ followers, we are family. And how we fail to treat each other's to treat each other as such. First finger pointed here, by the way. We see this truth, of course, in, tri- in Christ completely and perfectly. Uh, in, let me skip over to Hebrews 2. I hope I put that in the right place. Hebrews 2. Listen to this, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God, through the writer of Hebrews, calls Jesus Christ our brother. Our preeminent brother. But our brother. Who is, partially because he is our kin, is able to be our redeemer. And we see that in Boaz. Okay? Hopefully that helps you understand a little bit of how Boaz is a Christ type, certainly. So he's a relative. And then we see right in verse 1, he's worthy. The word worthy is used of Boaz. It says he was a worthy man, a, a man of standing, a prominent rich man, a mighty man of wealth, I think King James says. Depending on your translation, he's called speech. But worthy is, 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 is the most common, common word. Now, humanly speaking, of course we know he's, he's considered worthy. Maybe because of his family, maybe because of his background, maybe because of his wisdom, maybe because of his integrity. Uh, we, we see that in how he handled himself. He handled himself well when dealing with others, allowing God to, he says, how to, to saturate all the parts of his life, right? To, to, as we, we're going to see in just a moment. But I think there's another reason for the word worthy here. I think there's always another reason for the word worthy when we're looking at it rightly. And it was because Ruth was a grace receiver. He was a grace giver, grace conduit, it's because of his grace position that he's called worthy. 
He may have been a grace giver now, but he started, as we all do, as a grace receiver. Does that make sense? Let me remind you of something. Boaz was a son of Rahab. The prostitute that helped Israelite spies survive and escape before the fall of Jericho. The sinful woman who received pardon because of her evident faith in the God of Israel demonstrated by her help to his people. She is one of four women mentioned in the lineage of Christ with Ruth. In other words, we know looking through the lens of the New Testament and the gospel that Boaz had been positioned by God in the line of Christ. Not only to perpetuate the line, but to be a glorious direct line of sight to the Messiah. The kinsman redeemer. Do you see it? He was worthy ultimately not because of his integrity or his personality or his wealth or his dealings or his family. He was worthy because he was counted worthy because his God was worthy. That's why. Boaz's name means in him is strength. And I think we should capitalize the pronoun in him. In God is strength. This is why Boaz is called worthy in the big picture. Because his God is worthy. That's why. The worth we ascribe to ourselves that it can only come from one place. And that's Christ. If we try to draw our worth from anything else, it is false. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Not in my uh, religion. Not in my goodness. Not in my church attendance. Not in my tie. Not in anything else. I have to wear a tie tonight. I had to point it out sooner or later. But in Christ alone, my hope is found, and in Christ alone. So he's worthy, but I think it's important that we dig and, and unpack why that is. And the second thing that we see, I think about boys, the next thing is that I'm going to put two together. He's obedient and he's generous. I'm going to put those two together. He's obedient and he's generous. And we see this through this whole exchange from verse, verses 4 to 13. You need to go back and read it, read it later. I'm, I'm going to try to watch time. We've got a, lot, a little bit more ground to cover. So but this whole exchange, um, Boaz is aware. We know that because of what we're, the little snippet we're told about him and his actions later, we know that he's aware and deeply committed to fulfilling the law of his God by caring for Ruth and also caring for Naomi. He's heard about their story and he wants to do the right thing by them. He apparently was known for allowing others in poverty to glean as well. He knew what was right to do and he did it because Boaz would probably say because it's the right thing to do, Right? As we mentioned earlier, and this, we mentioned this earlier, and I think this is cool. So well known and understood was this part of Boaz's character that when Ruth asked for the privilege of gleaning right after the reapers, the overseer didn't have to go ask Boaz. In other words, his faith in his God was evident enough that other people knew how he'd react in a situation. The manager knew his employer's convictions, his master's convictions in life, well enough to know that he would be gracious in granting this request. And he didn't have to go ask Boaz. He knew what Boaz would do. Now, it's worth pointing out, and the reason I put those two together is we see clearly through how Boaz provides, that being obedient and being generous are mutually inclusive and inextricably connected. If you are an obedient person with your God, you're going to be a generous person in some way, somehow. Right? Okay, that, that's just a truth that we need to point out. We see it clearly in Boaz. He was obedient. He was generous. And the last one, and the one that probably overshadows the whole thing, is that Boaz was a worshiper of the one true God. He was God-following. 
And as we've already pointed out, this is, this is why he's respected, because his character is shaped by the one that he serves. This is why he's generous. This is why he's obedient to the law. And we know this again through this curious little detail that shows us that there's, I may have heard you say it this way before, I'm not sure, through the God stuff that just saturates his life. All the way down to the way he greets his people, to the way he greets his employees, the way he greets his servants. Verse 4 shows this greeting. And some would glance over it, but I think it's significant. Verse 4, behold, behold, behold hmm, hmm, try it again. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, that was his servants, his workers, he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. Lord is in capital L there. That's the covenant name of God. He knows what he's doing. And they answered, the Lord bless you. He shows this greeting. We see this greeting in verse 4, and I think there's because of the name that's used there, Boaz is demonstrating his, his faith and his inclusion of the covenant God that he follows in every part of his life, even the way he conducts his business. Some of you that are out in the business world, just let that sink in for a minute. And this flows into verse 5 when he inquires about Ruth and sets in motion the generous provision, not only for her, her physical needs, for, her, for, her, for the food she's seeking, but for her safety and her security and success in her work. This is how we know that that greeting was more than a pious platitude because it was followed by action. Make sense? Now stop here and think about this for just a minute. This whole kind of picture that we're painting. We know, again, if you heard chapter 1 or you go back and listen to chapter 1, you'll know that we all find ourselves in Ruth's position spiritually before Christ. We're all outsiders. We all, in the beginning, stand in the same place under the wrath and judgment of a holy and righteous God because of our sin. Doomed, but for the grace of God, offered only in the cross of Christ. Right? Right? We, we are the Moabites. We are the outsiders. We should have never gotten in. But if you've been following Christ for any length of time, even a short one, you have to begin to look and put yourself in Boaz's position. Assuming that you have found God's favor, that you have faith in Christ, that you are forever His, that you, this, is, this, comes, this flows out of this morning. You should be moving from being only, and you always will be, by the way, a grace recipient. That never stops. Because you don't just need grace for salvation. You need grace for every step you take, for every time, every step you take back, and every time you turn back around. You need grace for every breath that you breathe. As a follower of Christ. But you have to start moving from being only a grace recipient to being also a grace giver or a grace conduit, as we said. In other words, if God has saved you, he didn't do it for you alone. Stop and let that register. If he saved you, he didn't do it just for you. Primarily, mainly, he did it for him. He did it for his glory in and through you so that others might see and also come to faith in him. Amen. Ties into what Dwayne was talking about this morning out of 2 Peter chapter 1. And it ties into why believers can and should grow in their faith and walk with Christ. Move from just receiving grace to being a conduit for grace. How should this affect our daily lives? What does this mean for the way we act and talk and think and consume and relate and conduct our business and, and execute being a student? Raise our kids and everything we do? What does that mean? It means everything. It means everything. Everything you do as a grace recipient 
And as a grace conduit, everything you do should be done to the glory of God. Even the little things. Thereby becoming more and more and more a grace conduit. You may be the channel through which God wants to directly move grace into someone else's life. You may be the person. You, I think it's been said this way. You might be the only Jesus that somebody ever sees. You. And that's whether you're in high school or elementary or in the nursing home. It doesn't matter. You may be the, you may be the channel by which God wants to move grace into someone's life. Maybe by helping them in a time of need. By ministering to them. By uh, sitting with them in a time of loss and grief. By sharing the gospel with them. By students, youth night. By simply being nice to somebody who everybody else makes fun of at school. You may be, you, you know, you will be or will not be a, a channel, a tributary, a, a, a conduit of grace by the way you conduct yourselves, by the way you maintain your integrity, by the way you treat your family, your friends, your fellow students, by the way you do your taxes. Who knows what, it, what might be the application? Here's how you let Boaz impact your life. Do everything you do. Even the seemingly important word, even the seemingly mundane details of your life in the name of Jesus and to the glory of God the Father. That's how you let Boaz impact your life. Whether it's how you conduct your business or how you treat your teachers and your, and your, and your homework. I know you don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. And whatever you do in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.17. If you're writing stuff down, write down that reference. And whatever you do, I'm going to read it again. Tune in. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Both in Ruth and even more in Boaz, we see a marvelous example of that. Brother Lawrence was a French monk in the 1600s. And some of you are thinking, what do we care about a French monk? There's a book that is a collection of his correspondence and letters and things called The Practice of the Presence of God. And in this he talks about a joy and a peace and a worship and a spiritual life that I think, if should we all read it, many of us would envy. Here's the thing. He didn't find these by being a monk. He didn't find them on a mountaintop. He didn't discover joy in Christ in, in a blaze of glory or a life-changing trip to, to Haiti or to Uganda or to youth camp, or to the men's conference, or to Beth Moore, or anyplace else. You know where he found it? He found it in living these things and doing through things like peeling potatoes for his brothers while he cooked. Peeling potatoes for the glory of God. That's where he found it. 
by repairing sandals for local needy children later in life when he was no longer able to stand because of his health. He found that taking simple, everyday tasks, and he did them as worship to his Savior, was his way, was the way he would experience more and more of the presence of God. The little things. I think we would do well to consider his model. I'm not talking about mysticism, or uh, some might call that over-spiritualization. But rather through an understanding that if you're, if you're a Christ follower, if you belong to him, you belong to him. And your life is not your own. Even the small parts. If you're a believer, you, all of you, every part of you were bought with a price. And that was the shed blood of your Savior. You belong to him. And as such, your life, every part of it, can be a reflection of his glory. Every part. That's what we take from Boaz. Even if you don't stop and think before you uh, prepare the meal for that person in need or give that gift or, or mow the lawn or, or take up for that kid or whatever it may be. Even if you don't stop and think, I'm going to do this homework assignment as an act of worship. Even if you don't think that. You should begin to understand that God orders your steps. He orders and directs your life and your circumstances for his glory. Even the small parts. For his glory and for your good. That's what you take from Boaz. So it really comes down to a really simple, really simple response. What do, what do we do with this, David? Really, really simple. First, be like Ruth. You already are, by the way. Be a grace receiver. And how you do that is you faith in Christ. If you have not done that, if you have never repented of sin and fully trusted in Christ, you haven't received grace yet. And you can't do the other without that. If you have, rest in that and follow him more closely. Be like Ruth. Pretty simple, right? Guess what the second step is? Be like Boaz. <laughs> Live your life, even the small parts, even the seemingly insignificant stuff that happens at high school, middle school, and at work and in the office, for the glory of Christ. Demonstrated in a thousand little ways that you might not even stop to think about. Now, we have those big mountaintop opportunities. We have the 80 trips and the Uganda trips and the back to school events. We have those opportunities. What about all the in-between times? What about all the in-between times? Because stop and think about that for a second. That's three events. There's, let's, let's, do it. let's take a week for Haiti and a week for Uganda, one day for back to school. 52 minus 2. There's still 50 weeks left. Yes, I had to stop and do that math out loud. <laughs> what about all the in-between time? Be a grace conduit. So here's how we're going to respond. Very, very simple. I'm going to ask David just a moment when we pray to come up. And he's going to sing a song that's kind of familiar. And we've sung it a lot of times. Very simple song. That I think, hopefully, if it's registered, will maybe take on a little more depth. Give us clean hands. 
God, work, work in the small ways in my life. I'm going to put it to you a little more sucker punch kind of way. Show grace and work in me in all of the little places that I haven't let you yet. Go there, God. Go there. Now, if you're here tonight and you've never taken the first step, you've never been a grace receiver, you've never fully trusted. By the way, if you've never fully trusted in Christ alone, you haven't really trusted him at all. And you've never settled that question. Tonight can be the night. Dwayne's right here. Brent is right over there. I'll be down here. David, I've never really truthfully turned from my sin and trusted in Jesus. That comes first. Do it tonight. And for the rest of us, altar is open. There's people around you. You know, I really, I really don't let God work in the details. You know what you need to do? It's the same word you're going to hear me say. Over and over and over. You need to repent of that. And be more like Boaz. God, thank you for... Thank you for this book. That is so much more than a love story between Ruth and Boaz. This, this is not just a romance between two people. This is the love story of a savior for his people. This is the love story of God for us. No matter where we are in our faith walk, Lord, there may be even one here tonight that, that has never become a grace recipient. Lord, this, 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 you want this to be their story. Lord, for all of us in this room, every single one of us, that have faith in Christ. We are all on a journey. And for every one of us. We can all immediately think of an area. I need more grace here. I need to let God in more here. There's a lot of in between, in, in between spaces in my life Lord. That need to be filled with more grace. So God you deal with hearts tonight. Starting with me. And you do what you have already purposed to do. In Jesus' name, amen.